Larry Bird's not walking through that door. We're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. It's my team. It's my quarterback. Okay. It is... God! 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 To be the man! You gotta beat the man! The 2-1. Swan Lane drive left hand! Water on his end! This is the Powers on Sports Podcast. Thank you for finding us on the Powers on Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Jason, down in Tampa. Hope everybody had a great New Year's Eve, New Year's Day weekend. Hopefully everybody was safe and no issues. Uh, I know I was at the Outback Bowl on New Year's Day after a pretty quiet New Year's Eve. We had a fun time in the booth with my man T.J. Reeves and Ian Beckles on the radio call for Arkansas and Penn State at the Outback Bowl for local radio here in the Tampa Bay area. Uh, Very impressive performance. Good job by Arkansas. Very impressed by Sam Pittman and and, uh, what they're putting together at the University of Arkansas. Really liked what I uh, heard out of Coach Pittman after the game, post-game. and we are almost to the end of the college football season. We only have one game left. Alabama, Georgia are going to play for the national title in Indianapolis coming up on Monday night. And we are going to have Matt Zemek of USA Today, Trojan Wire. Going to bring him on. Matt's going to talk to us about the bowl season, Alabama, Georgia matchup, the semifinal breakdowns, um, and all those good things. We're going to talk some Antonio Brown. And we're actually going to, I'm going to provide you some NFL game picks and even a Georgia-Alabama pick for the weekend, too. So before we get to Matt, I'm going skiing next week, this weekend, leaving for Steamboat Springs, Colorado on Saturday. Hopefully I can get out of town on in Tampa from the airport. I know there's been tons of travel cancellations with airlines and all that kind of stuff with COVID and all. So hopefully... Hopefully, I can enjoy some a little bit of a vacation out in the Denver area, Steamboat Springs, do a little skiing with my fellas, my man Brian Cooper and company. We're going to have a fun time. So, wish me luck. No injuries. Got an MRI scheduled on my knee for when I get back. So, hopefully, no injuries. Heading into the MRI. Going to have a good time out in Steamboat. Still going to be watching some football on Sunday. I'll be able to watch some football Sunday. Going to probably go skiing Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday next week, and then fly back on Saturday. So fun-filled week in out in Steamboat Springs. Again, college football galore on Monday with the national title game. you got week 18 of the National Football League. It's incredible to think the regular season is wrapping up on Sunday with the final game Sunday night going to be Las Vegas hosting the L.A. Chargers. A winner-and-you're-in scenario in Las Vegas will be a great one on Sunday night football with Alan Chris. So enjoy Matt Zemek, USA Today, Trojan Wire, right after these messages. You're listening to the Powers on Sports podcast. Find us on all the podcast platforms. Tweet us any responses you might have to at JPO Sports. Would love to hear from you. 
So enjoy Matt Zemick, and we'll be right back. We'll be right back to the podcast in just a minute. Now a word from our sponsor, BetUS. Hey, guys and girls, with the college bowl games in full swing and the NFL playoffs fast approaching, you need a sports book with integrity and longevity like BetUS. As you may or may not know, BetUS has been pioneers in the sports book industry for almost three decades, thriving, and most importantly, paying their loyal customer base. That is BetUS.com. They have loads of bonuses available to you. Join now or call 1-800-69-BETUS. That is 1-800-MY-BET-US. You will receive 125% of a sign-up bonus by using the bonus code, promo code 125. Not 50, not 75, not 100, but 125%. They have re-up and referral bonuses as well. BETUS is known as America's favorite sports book, for a ton of reasons. BetUS has all of your NBA, NHL games with team and player props and loads of NFL odds and plays. You can bet UFC matches, UFC props, PGA Tour golf, PGA Tour golf round matchups, and live betting on most sports. The online casino has hundreds of games and the race book has all of your favorite horse tracks from around the country. They have every bet type imaginable and the BetUS mobile platform is easy with full betting options. Follow my lead and get your phone, online, and social sports betting partner with integrity and longevity like I did. BetUS. You bet, you win, and more importantly, you get paid. BetUS. And remember our promo code XXXX. BetUS, where the game begins. All right, welcome back to our New Year's Week edition. 2022 is already here. Unbelievable to think we are in 2022. So you are listening to the Powers on Sports podcast. I'm your host, Jason, down here in Tampa. We are going to talk all things college football national championship game this weekend. We're going to hit some Antonio Brown. That's kind of the big news in the NFL wrapping up the regular season in the NFL this week. I'll give you some game picks later in the podcast. And we're also going to give you a little heads up on the college basketball season. The college hoop season is kind of taking shape now. Conference season has started most everywhere around the country. Uh, and no better person to talk to this, uh, this football, college football, college hoops, than with my man, Matt Zemek. Matt is the editor of USA Today Trojan Wire covers all things USC athletics. We'll even get his opinion. We'll get his thoughts on how Lincoln Riley's doing on the recruiting trail and such and in the transfer portal. So welcome back to the podcast, Matt. Thanks, Jason. Happy new year. Appreciate it, Matt. Appreciate it. What was, uh, what was new year's like out in beautiful Phoenix area? Uh, you know, it, it rained during the playoffs, which I guess is mother nature's way of saying that, you know, the PAC 12 is just, uh, is just in a sad state. <laughs> relative to the playoff but then it was sunny skies on new year's day which meant that was nature's way of saying ah the rose bowl's back in pasadena so if you want metaphors uh the rain during the playoffs in phoenix and sun on new year's day uh, you can take it whatever however you want but that's that's my interpretation how was the uh how was the turnout for the fiesta bowl with oklahoma state notre dame uh mediocre uh you know the uh the lower bowls were filled the the like the upper bowls at uh the stadium in glendale the phoenix cardinal the arizona cardinal stadium right the upper bowls were populated you know between the 20 yard lines but the end zone seats lower and upper bowls weren't uh 
didn't have a whole lot of seats. I don't, I don't, I forget what the exact attendance figure was, but there were at least like 15,000 empty seats. And for a, for an 11 a.m. local time game, that's when the game yeah. started. Uh, and it's not a playoff uh, semifinal. Right. You know, if that you're, you're going to have that. And plus, you know, the pandemic complications. I think that, you know, in a pre pandemic context, that Oklahoma State Notre Dame game would have popped a lot more. Sure. I think you would have gotten a bigger attendance. I think that for the non playoff games, I think there's a small, I don't think like it's, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's broadly representative of fan bases but you'll get like several thousand fewer fans willing to make the trip. Right. Because why go through all the inconvenience for a non-playoff game? Now, I mean, the, the, uh, the Utah, you know, filling the Rose bowl, getting like, you know, 55, 60,000 people. Well, you know, that was Utah's first Rose bowl. Right. So that was a special case where, you know, it's not a playoff game, but you know, it was an extraordinarily important and emotionally significant moment for Utah fans, but if you don't have something like that and you get a, a, a non-playoff game, we'll look at Pitt, Michigan state, lots of empty seats at Mercedes Benz stadium in Atlanta. The Gator uh, bowl. There might've been 5,000 5, people at the Gator bowl. It was awful. Yep. Yep. I mean, who would want to see who, people didn't pay to see Rutgers. So, um, right. you know, so it's, it's, you know, we, we have a discussion, you know, about the bowls and how to rethink them. And it's not so much the pandemic though. That is, yeah. go, you know, it, apparently it's going to be a thing. And then at least in the, in the short term, the next few years that, that demands some solutions, but I think in a, on a broader level beyond the pandemic, we need to rethink the bowl games. I'm not yeah. saying do away with them, but like, if we are going, if we're going to have bowl games, what we're doing now, it's not hitting the sweet spot. It's it's leaving a lot of people unsatisfied. Of course, there was the incident with UCLA backing out of the Holiday Bowl right. at the very last minute. And, you know, maybe UCLA made a bad choice. But the bigger point is, why do we have teams backing out at the last minute? Like, we need to have policies and guidelines so that, you know, the North Carolina State team... And North Carolina State fans, they travel from Raleigh, North Carolina, all the way to San Diego for a game, and you leave them, you leave them at the altar just five hours before kickoff. Right. Like, that's not right. That's like, we can right. agree that that's not right. And you know, UCLA chose not to play. And again, you know, maybe UCLA had perfectly good reason to, but LSU's playing in this Texas bowl game against Kansas State with under 40 scholarship players. Yeah, right. So like who, you know, who's making the decisions in terms of who plays and who doesn't, we don't have uniform standards. We don't have, you know, consistent guidelines. I mean, and we're just leaving it up to the teams and I'm not saying the teams shouldn't have some say, but you know, when one team backs out at the last minute and another team goes ahead, plays with under 40 scholarship players, which is not safe. Right. Uh, you know, who's minding the store, who's providing governance and leadership where are the consistent standards? There's a lot to talk about in the offseason in terms of how we do bowl games in college football right now. And and even more importantly, <laughs> when you get to these bowl games, even the New Year's Day bowl games that don't have any national championship implications, all your big-time players are opting out. They're not playing. They're all, you know, which I can understand from perspective, as we all know, yeah. Jalen Smith a few years ago at Notre Dame, 
Would have been a top five pick, blew his knee Matt out. Matt Corral, Matt Corral of Ole Miss getting hurt. Right. I mean, so I can understand guys doing that when they know they're going to be a high pick, but you have so many of these guys that are just, you know, bailing out of their team. And again, there's an argument to me on both sides. Kirk Curb, Street, very assertive and very aggressive with his, his opinion that guys shouldn't be quitting on their team like this. But if you got a $10 million lottery ticket looking at you down the, down the road by staying healthy, why would you play in the holiday bowl or the fiesta bowl that has no national championship implications? Absolutely. So like we can't, we can't just go along the way it's always been done. And actually, actually having said that it's not the way it's always been done. Like this, this thing has continuously changed. I noted on Twitter this past week that 40 years ago, 1980, 1981, 1982, there were only 16 bowl games. Right. And you had just an 11 game regular season. So teams that were in bowl games 40 years ago, you were at least eight and three. Like you were at least right, five right. games over 500. Right. You didn't have six and six and seven, five teams generally in bowl games, maybe one or two. Uh, but like the, they were the very rare exceptions. But today, you know, they're a dime a dozen. But bowl games were exceptional back yes. then. They were exceptional, unique events. Like the Gator Bowl was a really big deal in the early 1980s. Holiday Bowl was a really big deal. The Blue Bonnet Bowl was a really big deal. I mean, it, it felt special to make those games and right. win those games. Uh, I noted that uh, when Arkansas beat Florida, in the 1982 Blue Bonnet Bowl down in the Astrodome, Arkansas players gave Lou Holtz a victory ride. Like, that was a really <laughs> big deal for that team. Arkansas had lost a number of bowl games in consecutive seasons. Lost the Sugar Bowl to Alabama in the 1979 season. Lost the Gator Bowl to North Carolina in 1981. So when they broke through and they beat uh, Florida in 1982, it was, it was a really special thing. And you don't have that today, you know, so, and, and that's just one of the many different things, which is different about the bulls today uh, or different about the bulls then compared to today. And so the incentives are different. The culture's different, how the athletes respond are different. And, you know, and, we don't need to necessarily put more of a specific plan right now, Jason, but the bigger thing is just, we do need to change the incentives. If we want to have player, you know, Kenny Pickett, and Kenneth Walker playing in the Peach Bowl. We need to change incentives if we want to get packed houses for the right. non-playoff New Year's Six Bowl games. We have to change a lot of things if we want certain outcomes, and that's really the discussion we need to have. What do we want out of bowl games? What are we expecting out of bowl games? If well, we have certain longstanding expectations, they're not being met, and we need to make changes if we want those expectations to be met. Two thirds, I mean, in my opinion, two thirds of these bowl games are simply for TV content for ESPN, Fox Sports to air three hours or four hours of content in the middle of December, or late December, for something that, like you said, the six, we know, but who wants to see Central Michigan and Buffalo at six and six playing each other? I mean, not many people other than those two fan bases. That's, but again, it's TV content for ESPN and Fox Sports to cover these games and put out, put a game on, they own the bowl. So they're funding it, which back in the day was not the case. NBC didn't own the Fiesta bowl. There was a Fiesta yep. bowl committee. There was an orange bowl committee that financed all this stuff. So there was more incentive for them to get good teams and get good, great matchups and all that stuff. So 
I just think there's too many bowl games. You could probably cut the bowl games easily by 30% to make it more enticing to where you would have more eight and four kind of teams involved as opposed to the six and six kind of teams throughout. Well, and, and you know, you, you, that, that phrase, there are too many bowl games. I mean, that we need to have a discussion about that. And I'm not, I'm not saying that I agree with that. I'm not saying I disagree with that. But the, the notion of too many bowl games, it gets to a certain, you know, there are certain underlying assumptions attached to that. There are too many bowl games because A, B, C, D, E. And I think if you're, if you're someone who does think there are too many bowl games, it's precisely because of what I was talking about earlier, that bowl games used to be special. Right. Bowl games used to be electric. Bowl games used to be, they were not exhibitions. They were championship games. You know, we're Gator Bowl champions. We're Blue Bonnet Bowl champions. Right. You usually played another top 20 team in a bowl game four years ago. Like that, that was a statement win at the end of your season. Like the Blue Bonnet Bowl usually had, was a top 20 matchup. Gator Bowl usually was a top 20 matchup. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not quite old enough to remember the 1980 Gator Bowl. The first, I, my first Gator Bowl I remember watching was 81, North Carolina and uh, Arkansas. But the year before, Pittsburgh against South Carolina. Who, who did you have in that game? Pittsburgh was number three in the country, wow. number one. So, like, you, the Gator Bowl got an elite team. Yep. Uh, Pittsburgh somehow didn't go to the Cotton Bowl or didn't go to one of the other uh, prestige games that year but you also had george rogers uh who uh won the heisman uh in 1980 running back out of south carolina yep. and you had hugh green of pittsburgh who finished in the top three so like you had two of the top three heisman finishers and a number three team in the 1980 gator bowl like that's how big a deal the gator bowl was back then and so you know for people who say there are too many bowl games that's what they're getting at like Bowl games were special. Like that, that, that was an appointment television game, the 1980 Gator Bowl, and other games of that stature, late December games. They weren't even January games. Yep. Late yep. December bowls were significant events. Yep. So, but the, the idea that there are too many bowl games, it just needs to be, you know, unpacked. It needs right. to be fleshed out in terms of what do we want from bowl games? And if you do want the Gator Bowl, to be a really big deal, then yes, there are too many bowl games. But I think when people say there are too many bowl games and when other people push back against that, they don't flesh out the argument. They don't then go to the next point. We need to get to that next point and fully explain what we want from the bowl games. We really need to have that conversation in the offseason. All right, so let's get to your bowl, the bowl game out, out the West Coast, the Rose Bowl, probably the best of the bowl games all year. Utah, Ohio State, what a crowd Utah brought to the Rose Bowl, their first ever appearance. Shout out to my buddy Kelly Sherritt, who's the equipment guy at Utah. Another shout out to a buddy of mine, Ryan Hagan, who refereed in the game as part of the SEC crew in the game. But what a football game that was, Utah and Ohio State. Let's just stop for a second and admire not only the fact that the Rose Bowl returned to Pasadena this year after not being held in Pasadena last year, like that just felt like normal. That was a nature is healing moment to start 2022. But let's also step back and look at the past five years uh, of Rose Bowls, Jason. 2017, USC 52, Penn State 49. 
2018, Georgia 54, Oklahoma 48 in playoff overtime. Game. Playoff and, game. Uh -huh. That was a playoff game. That was a playoff game. And now you have uh, the 2022 Rose Bowl, Ohio State 48, Utah 45. So, like, we've had three classic Rose Bowls yeah. in the last five years. That's a pretty darn good run for the granddaddy. Now, about this game, uh, a, few, a few things. One, Utah was ha had brutal injury luck. Utah yep. was controlling this game until its tight end, who was dominating Ohio yes. State's secondary, got hurt. Like, you can just – that that was the clear line of demarcation, the obvious turning point in that game. So Utah was bitterly unlucky. But here's the flip side. We talked about this, Jason, on our shows uh, the past few months during the college football regular season. He said, you know, the quarterback play in the Pac-12 is awful. You know, the just the, – the, the bar was set so low. So Utah goes up against C.J. Stroud. There's nobody in the Pac-12 who is even close to the standard of C.J. Stroud. So when he comes in and, and Utah is facing Stroud, you know, this is not Anthony Brown in Oregon anymore. You know, you're, you're going up against a big league passer. And I know that Utah's secondary was depleted and Utah right. had to go, you know, deep into the depth chart, had to get some offensive players to play defense and go two ways. Yep. Yes, Utah was depleted, and Ohio State probably would have done pretty well on offense, even if it was uh, against uh, Utah's yeah. starting secondary. But yep. even then, it's still a product of Utah did not face any passing game remotely close to this all season long, and it just magnifies how the standard of play in the Pac-12 was so low that when you go up against other top teams across the country, and this is not a very good Ohio State team, you know, this is the Ohio State team, which got destroyed by a Michigan team, which got destroyed by Georgia. So, like, that's how that's how much worse Ohio State was this year compared to previous years. And yet, and that Ohio State team, that Ohio State offense, was still, you know, easily able to march down the field against Utah's defense. Uh, it, it just puts into perspective how low the standard of play in the Pac-12 was this year. And Ohio, two, it was either two or three of Ohio State's best receivers opted out of the game. So the guy that went crazy for 275 yards was like the third option. That's right. That's right. And, and like the, the Smith, the Jigba, and, and there were a Harrison couple other Jr. receivers here. Harrison, Marvin Harrison's son, yep. Jr., played, played a great game. Yep. That's right. And so, you know, again, Utah was depleted, but – like it just shows how in the Pac-12 you don't have that level of athleticism. Like, yeah. and so you know, Utah had nothing to prepare itself. Right. It had no basis or standard for going up against Ohio State. Like, if if, if Utah had gone up against a passing game, you know, which was somewhat dynamic, you know, it could then perhaps have adjusted to Ohio State's speed a little bit better. But there was no basis for that. Like, there was no comparable passing attack and that's part of what left left utah underprepared it wasn't just that utah lacked bodies that was obviously you know important but if if there was another pac-12 team that could throw the ball anywhere close to ohio state maybe the utes would have been able to do a little bit better damage control and they might have been able to win in spite of their own bad injury luck yeah yeah all right let's get to the heavyweight fights mike tyson versus michael spinks Georgia, Michigan. I mean, this game was over at the end of the first quarter. 
I mean, not that everybody was surprised Michigan got beat, but I, I don't think anybody thought Georgia was going to manhandle them the way they did. Your thoughts? Well, you know, it's what I just said about, uh, you know, Ohio State not being very good, that Michigan was able to have its way. And, you know, Ohio State's dominance of Michigan the past decade was so comprehensive that for Michigan to turn the tables in that matchup, I mean, that struck me, and I think it struck a lot of other people as, whoa, so Michigan, Michigan's different this time. Right. But, but Ohio State, it, it, I, the, the verdict really, you now in hindsight, and after looking at the Bulls this weekend, it's, it's less about Michigan being that much greater. It's more about Ohio State being that much worse. Right. And so you put that Michigan team up against Georgia, and yeah, physically, it was no contest. So it wasn't so much that Michigan was rising. It was more about how much Ohio State had fallen. And that's the miscalculation I made. Like, I thought Georgia would win, but I did think it would be close because I, I thought too. Michigan – would be able to physically hold up right against Georgia. And that was clearly not the case. You saw very early on that these were some dudes against uh, some weaklings. It was and, men against boys. Yeah. And, uh, that was very quickly apparent. And I think you saw Stetson Bennett's a better player than we think he is. He is a good quarterback in that play action system. When Georgia can run the ball, he is a good play action quarterback. You got Bowers, you got James Cook out of the backfield, devastating matchups against linebackers and safeties against anybody, even more so against that Michigan defense who tend to be a little slower at the linebacker and safety positions. Total mismatches there. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, again, I thought Michigan athletically and physically was going to at least put up a fight, but that wasn't true. Now, with Stetson Bennett, like he, first off, okay, yes, he played a brilliant game. But let's also acknowledge that he was sipping iced teas in the pocket. Yeah. <laughs> His jersey was clean. He didn't yeah. have anything to threaten him. Yeah. And so let's just let's just segue right into it. You go against Alabama, a team that's likely to put up points, a team that's likely to threaten Georgia's defense. You know, that's like Georgia's kryptonite. It's Kirby Smart's obstacle. So like against every team other than Alabama, Stetson Bennett is going to look pretty good. Uh, but Alabama is the ultimate test. It's the ultimate measuring stick. And so the last two times Georgia and Alabama have played, the final score has been the same, 41-24. So I think it starts with, this This game doesn't start with Stetson Bennett, but it, it comes down to, can Georgia's defense, you know, smack Bryce Young, rip, yeah. hit him hard, get him off his spot, rattle him, you know, make make him feel his presence, make him feel uh, the turf in Indianapolis, you know, rough him up, get to him early. And yep. then if this game is close in the fourth quarter, you know, which it wasn't in the SEC championship game, it wasn't a year ago in Tuscaloosa when Alabama ran away with it, then we're going to see what Stetson Bennett's made of. If this That's game right. is up for grabs, it's a 50-50 ball in the fourth quarter, Stetson Bennett will then get his chance. But, but first... It's about Georgia's defense being able to rebound from that embarrassment in Atlanta and get to Bryce Young. And, and, you know, it's really kind of interesting that you look at the playoff semifinals. Alabama did not play well on offense against Cincinnati. Uh, that, that was a very mediocre game for the Crimson Tide. Um, and, and Cincinnati, interestingly enough, like Cincinnati on defense, not on offense, but on defense, 
Cincinnati played with the toughness that I was expecting Michigan to deliver against Georgia. Like Cincinnati's defense is for real. I think we can see that. Like Alabama just did not bust loose against that defense. And so, at, you know, in looking at, at Georgia versus Alabama, that, uh, you know, Alabama played, you know, a mediocre offensive game. So I think that that actually counterintuitively works in Alabama's favor. Like, you know, Georgia, Georgia came much closer to maxing out in the semifinal right. than Alabama did. It kind of felt like Alabama was saving the heavy artillery for the title game. You, you didn't see the full uh, playbook. You didn't see the full you saw a uh, heavy assortment dose, of weapons. Heavy um, dose of Brian Robinson, 200 yards rushing. That was the part I was impressed with, that they committed and stayed with the running game. To me, it reminded me of when Larry Holmes fought Muhammad Ali. I don't think there was any doubt Holmes was going to win, but he just kind of – it was just a grind it out, beat him down kind of game. They were never in danger of losing – because that Alabama running game played really, really well. Yeah, and I think that, that if, if you're Alabama, like that's the thing that has to give you the most confidence, right? That the, this is not one of Nick Saban's great offensive lines. Like right. last, year, last season's offensive line with Landon Dickerson and Alex Leatherwood, that was an elite yep. offensive line. This one isn't, but in the month off that it had, you certainly saw a lot of improvement a lot of evolution. So if that offensive line plays, you know, at a, at a high level against Georgia's defensive front, yeah, I, I, Alabama has to be considered the favorite. And I what Georgia's like a two, two and a half choice. Two yeah. and a half favorite. I, I mean, can someone? I mean, I guess the thought process simply is is that the rematch isn't going to go like the original. But Nick Saban against Kirby Smart, like Georgia's. Georgia has the, uh, the the burden of proof here. Alabama has the benefit of the doubt. It's Georgia that has to prove uh, that, it, that it can take down, you know, its nemesis, the thorn in its side. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, like I have to, I have to lean toward Alabama in this game because like, this is the proven entity and you have an offensive line that certainly seems to be trending in the right direction. And if Alabama's offensive line you know, it doesn't even have to dominate Georgia's defensive front. If it just plays to a draw, that means Bryce Young has a has a good pocket to work yes. with. And that being the case, you know, we saw in Atlanta what that means. If if Alabama's offensive line fights Georgia's defensive front to a draw, that's advantage Alabama. That, that if that's a draw, Alabama wins this game. The two, the two, I think the three guys that think look at it from Georgia's perspective offensively. One, George Pickens is finally back, it seems like pretty healthy he's been out most of the year he's their best receiver for georgia the kid blake the bowers kid at tight end is a oh, stud he's gonna be amazing he is he's gonna be stud. an amazing pro he's a stud he's like a darren waller travis kelsey kind of guy yes tight end can georgia create the matchups where they can have the advantage there and then dalvin cook's little brother james cook out of the backfield he's a tough matchup in the flats in the in their passing game and can if they can get those three guys on the matchups with linebackers, safeties, I think Georgia can move the ball because I don't think Alabama's defense is elite either. No, I mean it's it's not you know like, like we we know what an elite Alabama defense looked like from 2011, from 2012. Uh, this is not in that in that same uh, They're ballpark. Good. They're right? good, not elite. Yes, absolutely. But I would say that you know Alabama playing good, you know B plus. That's that's probably going to be able to do it if you know the offensive line 
is able to deliver the goods. So, you know, I think it starts with Georgia's defense against Alabama's offense. The game starts there. And if yep. Georgia can keep, can stay in it, then the focus in the fourth quarter shifts to Georgia's offense. Can it deliver that dagger drive? Can it deliver that special moment, which has eluded Stetson Bennett to this point in his career? But the first half is about Georgia taking whatever punches yep. Alabama yep. might throw. And then if that happens, then the second half is about Georgia then asserting itself and delivering that first national championship since Herschel Walker, 1981 Sugar Bowl, Notre Dame. Uh, it, it's, it's a game where Georgia really has to come out and answer the bell. And if that happens and you don't fall behind by 10, 13, 17 points when you're absolutely cooked, yep. you know, that's not the kind of game Stetson Bennett can win. If Georgia can get this even or you know down just a field goal heading into the fourth quarter, then we'll get to see what Stetson Bennett and what this team is truly made of. I, I really hope we get that scenario because we just we need that proving ground uh, instead of seeing the same old Alabama story. And I'm going to give you an X factor on defense. One, how much does Georgia blitz Bryce Young? Remember, no John Mechie for Alabama. He's out, but you still have yep. Williams at, at wide receiver. You have good tight ends. Obviously, you have Robinson. They blitzed a lot in the SEC title game, and Bryce Young burned them. And number two, how much time is Dan Lanning spending at the Oregon job, your neck of the woods, as opposed to prepare? I know it's I know it's it's ten days, but how much is Kirby Smart involved with the defense in this matchup as opposed to Dan Lanning? And how much is Dan Lanning spending time related to the Oregon job as opposed to finishing out the job as defensive coordinator at Georgia? It's a great point. I would say though that because Kirby Smart is a defense first coach and you do have Will Muschamp on that staff and, you know, yep. Muschamp, a terrible head coach, but as a defensive uh, strategist, pretty darn good. So, yep. you know, I mean, I don't know anything that I'm, I'm just speculating yeah. here, but I think that, you know, Georgia has plenty of brain power on the defensive side of the ball to get things right. I, I'm really interested in, uh, you know, what, what Georgia's uh, offensive approach is going to be. And, and, and I, you know, on defense, it's more about just guys answering the challenge. I think Georgia, there was a part of this that uh, in the SEC championship game where Georgia came in 12 and 0 and heard all the press clip, uh, press attention, read all the press clippings, yep. was a touchdown favorite. Yep. Uh, it reminded me a lot of the 2003 Big 12 championship game in which Oklahoma came in against Kansas State, unbeaten. People were saying how great Oklahoma was. So people were saying how great Georgia was and how great yes. that defense was. And it's just easy to get caught up in that. And Alabama, you know, Alabama as an underdog, like Nick Saban had to love the, the circumstances in which he entered that SEC championship game. Oh, we're a touchdown underdog. Oh, people think we're, we're you know, you know, we, we barely beat Auburn. So people think yep. that we're terrible. Yep. Uh, it was a great setup uh, for Nick Saban. But now, you know, with Alabama having beaten Georgia, you know, the, the dogs are going to enter this game. Oh, at least one would think with a lot more humility uh, than they did in, in Atlanta. So, you know, it, it changes the dynamic, but uh, you know, I, I think for on defense, it's less about the plan for Georgia. It's more just about those guys who got their butts whipped, yep. uh, you know, just playing with a lot more passion, a lot more and they uh, got quality. 
than they displayed before. I think on offense, that's where the plan and where the scheme yes. uh, might need to deliver more uh, for Georgia. So, you know, Dan Lanning's place in all of this, I mean, he certainly contributed a lot to the Georgia program, but I think in the bigger workings of it, Kirby Smart, Will Muschamp, the other people on that side of the ball, you know, they, they can uh, formulate, you know, the right ideas, but ultimately the players on defense uh, have to execute it. No doubt. And Georgia's got all Americans on defense. Nicobe Dean, the big defensive tackle, Jordan Davis, I believe. I mean, they're all Americans. And that you got to play like all Americans. And this is their last opportunity to do it. Give me a prediction. Now, it, the benefit of the doubt goes with Alabama, and the burden of proof is with Georgia. Georgia has to prove it. And, and until Georgia does, I'm going to go with Alabama. Uh, I think, uh, you know, it's not going to be a 17-point game. I think it's going to be close. I'm going to say 31-27 Alabama. I'm going to go the other way. I think this is going to be the year somehow, some way. Stetson Bennett's going to get it done. I'll take Georgia, same kind of score, 30, like a 33-28 kind of game, high scoring. But, again, there'll be some defensive plays in this game. Don't be surprised if you see a defensive touchdown by one of these two teams. Special teams in these kind of games – tend to be a factor as well. I know Alabama's given up a lot of long returns kickoff-wise, so look out for a trick play. Again, they know each other so well. So, again, a trick play here, a, a new formation that they haven't uh, debuted this year. Um, I think that's where you're going to see the advantage in this game. So I'm going to go well, the dogs getting it done in Indianapolis. And let's just remember the 2018 2018- sec championship game between these two teams it turned on a disastrous fake punt yep uh by kirby smart that's that's when that game changed so yeah we're waiting for that special teams moment you know we've seen other national championship games turn on special teams moments most notably uh for me at usc that uh 2005 orange bowl when mark bradley of oklahoma muffed the punt inside his own 10 yard line that was the turning point, which led to the USC blowout of Oklahoma in that particular national title game. So, yeah, we've seen it in the past. A special teams play completely changes the, the complexion of a national championship game. All right, you listen to the Powers on Sports podcast. I'm Jason, along with Matt Zemick, covers all things USC for Trojan Wire, part of the USA Today platform. Talk to me a little bit about Lincoln Riley. How are things going with Lincoln out in L.A.? Recruiting, I know the transfer portal – you know, he's utilizing that. He's, you know, you heard from, you've heard stories that he's really doing well with the high school scene in LA. Give us an update. Well, you know, with Caleb Williams entering the transfer portal, uh, let's keep in mind that over the past month, Caleb Williams was attending Oklahoma basketball games. He appeared on an Oklahoma themed podcast, which was hosted by Oklahoma teammates. He goes to the Alamo bowl and plays and he plays well. Oklahoma scores the 47 points. Uh, he's had good things to say about Brent Venables. Everything that Caleb Williams had been doing over the past three to four weeks pointed to being satisfied and happy at Oklahoma. So doing this, you know, he Caleb Williams has said that uh, he that Oklahoma is definitely an option for him, but per the rules, he has to enter the portal in order to have exploratory conversations with other schools. So I don't think his mind's made up, but it's still interesting that he went to the portal after what, you know, certainly seemed to be a very satisfying Alamo bowl against Oregon. But obviously this raises the question, Jason, is he going to follow 
Lincoln Riley and go to USC. It's also interesting that he's been mentioned uh, as a Georgia, Georgia, but he's also been mentioned as a UCLA target. Okay. That that's been in the rumor mill as well. And so, you know, what, what, what is Caleb Williams thinking? We don't know, but like if he goes to USC or UCLA, that's a hugely explosive story. Of course, coming on the heels of Dylan Gabriel, Going transferring to, to UCLA and then flipping uh, to Oklahoma. So the Caleb Williams drama is really huge. And of course, Caleb Williams does go to USC. I'm not saying he will. I really have no idea. Like I thought he was going to stay at Oklahoma, but so now I, I don't know what he's going to do, but it, it let's think that Jackson Dart, the current QB one, at USC would transfer out because Caleb Williams is just, first off, he's just more advanced in his development. That's not a negative commentary on Jackson Dart. It's just that Jackson Dart was injured, you know, was behind Keaton Slovis. Uh, Clay Helton, of course, got, got fired. So that was the coach who recruited him. So Jackson Dart hasn't had a chance to really blossom. And then, of course, if Caleb Williams is there at USC, under that scenario, Caleb Williams has had the benefit of Lincoln Riley's coaching for a year. Yes. So that that alone would put him ahead of Jackson Dart. So you'd have to think that Jackson Dart would transfer. So like you, USC's quarterback situation is really hinging on whether Caleb Williams goes to USC. Now, in terms of Lincoln Riley beyond the Caleb Williams situation, one thing he did over the weekend, he hired Utah's running back coach, Keel McDonald, uh, who's very highly regarded and, uh, USC has run into a number of staffing plot twists that our coaches had agreed to be on Lincoln Riley's staff, and then they switched their minds. They changed their minds shortly thereafter. Jamar Kane uh, on Oklahoma staff, he was supposed to follow Lincoln Riley to USC, but then he changed his mind. He went to LSU to join Brian Kelly. And uh, Tashard Choice was the running back coach at Georgia Tech. Lincoln Riley thought he had him at USC, but then after like 48 hours, Choice changes his mind. He goes to join Steve Sarkeesian at Texas. So there's been a lot of churn and a lot of uh, intrigue in terms of why are these coaches agreeing to be with Lincoln Riley and then bailing on him. Now, now people can say, huh, maybe this points to instability in terms of Lincoln Riley's overall operation. But the counterpoint is that Riley is ready with a plan B whenever these changes have happened. So like getting Utah's running back coach, it's not just enhancing USC, you're also weakening your foremost competitor. Like USC and Utah, I think, I think it's pretty clear. Those are the two best teams in the Pac-12 heading into 2022. So Lincoln Riley not only found his running back coach and improved his own outfit, but he weakened Utah. So like, that's a masterstroke. And I think that when you look at the recruiting landscape, when you look at the transfer portal, you look at the coaching staff, uh, Lincoln Riley wants significant change. Like he's not making light tweaks on the edges. He wants an overhaul. He wants an extreme makeover. And the thing about an extreme makeover or like a, a really grand, larger ambition is that, you might not get everything you want, but if you get most of what you want and you're shooting for the moon, you're still going to get most, you know, of what you were aiming for. You're still going to get a substantial transformation. You might not get a hundred percent of it, but 75% yeah. of an ambitious agenda is a lot more than 75% of, you know, a minimalist 
agenda. So Lincoln Riley is making big changes at USC. I think people can agree on that. And when you, when you consider how bad the culture was, how bad the program was under Clay Helton, it really is a case where large scale changes were needed. So I think Lincoln Riley is checking the right boxes. He has the right scope of vision. He has the right big picture focus and fans are definitely on board with what he's doing and they should be. There you go. So did real last question on USC. Did they keep Dante Williams? I know he was the big recruiter. Yes, yes Dante, they did. The interim coach. He, he got retained. Yep. So like, he's not a coordinator or anything, but he's on there as an elite recruiter. And, uh, and that's another reason people at, here at USC are very happy uh, with how the uh, immediate coaching staff and also the support staff are being constructed. You know, there, there's a sense that, you know, Lincoln Riley is bringing in predominantly his guys from Oklahoma. But if there was one guy within the USC program who needed to be retained, it was Dante Williams. Lincoln Riley convincing Dante Williams to stay. That is definitely a coup for Lincoln Riley. There you go. There you go. All right, folks, that's our college football breakdown. We're going to hit a, which one NFL topic. There's only one topic to hit in my book down here in Tampa, Florida. Have you ever seen a situation like you saw in the Meadowlands on Sunday? Antonio Brown, mid-third quarter, takes his pads off, takes his shirt off, and just trots off to the sunset, giving high fives and waves to the crowd at MetLife as he basically ends his NFL career, in my opinion. Yeah, I think he has played his last uh, NFL game, and I think we have to realize – you know, there's a there's a lot of layers to this, but I think the, the the biggest one, the most important one, the most severe one. You know, this is very concerning. Yes. I mean, he has CTE, right? I mean, like we we know this. That or he, bipolar. He's either that or bipolar or both. Yeah. I mean, so like we're not. This is not just uh, you know a a character or you know this right. is not an episode in which uh, someone's acting out. Like this is someone who is, is significantly unwell. Right. So like, it's not so much the Antonio Brown carnival or right. sideshow. This is a guy who's really unwell yep. and we need to, to, to realize that. And it's very sad. The other really important point is that, <clears throat> you know, the Bruce Arians was saying until recently, like he's our guy, we're good with him. You know, it, 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 he, he certainly painted a picture of everything being fine, but, but then it wasn't fine. And, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, Tom Brady has talked and, 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 you know, he's spoken and reacted like a responsible human being, like a concerned teammate, like someone who knows that this isn't, uh, that he isn't, that Antonio Brown isn't well. I think Tom Brady has shown a lot of empathy, but Bruce Arians really has seemed to zig and zag and he did not provide the leadership or the context uh, in which the, the, the Buccaneers could have taken the best possible care of Antonio Brown, not as a football player, but as a human being, you know, who has these very significant problems and everybody knew about them. Uh, that, that is very concerning. And some, something needs to be asked about that. I would say this though, I'm going to defend Bruce a little bit on this. I know Tom Brady's had a lot of good comments here in the last couple of days, but Bruce Aaron did not want Antonio Brown on that football team. Tom Brady was the reason why Antonio Brown was signed and kept after the vaccination issue. If it wasn't for Tom Brady, he would not have been on the team last year, and he most certainly would not have stayed on the team after he was suspended. So 
Tom Brady's got to take a little bit of hit here for this because this was his guy. And I think Bruce Arians deep down didn't want, didn't want him on the team. I, I think that was told to him and he was placating to Tom Brady on this one, to be honest with you. That's a fair point. And it certainly brings up the power dynamic between Bruce Arians and Tom Brady that they, they need to be much more aligned. You know, we talk about alignment a lot in sports management these days, yep. you know, the, uh, the ownership, the front office, the head coach, they need to be in alignment. Well, you know, Tom Brady, he's kind of like an extension of the coach on the field. And obviously he was a central, he was and is a central figure in terms of getting other players to come join him right. uh, in Tampa, you know, to ch- pursue Super Bowls. So, I mean, I think we can say with, re- with reasonable clarity that Brady and Arians were not really on the same page right. with Antonio sure. Brown. For they sure. need to be... They need to be in much better alignment on both sides of it. And, and, and I hope, and I, I, I would bet this is probably happening behind the scenes. I would bet Tom Brady's fairly involved here behind the scenes. Now with it, whether it's through third parties or somebody trying to get Antonio the help he needs, because I hate to say it, the guy needs major help right now. Major, he needs, yes. He needs, an inter, he needs a major league intervention right now before something drastic yes. and tragic happens to Antonio Brown or somebody else because he 100%. does something that's just off the radar and just and just unacceptable. So hopefully Tom Brady's handling that behind the scenes and Antonio's true friends in the league. I know he probably doesn't have a lot of them, but hopefully his true people that he care that care about him in the league and around the league, whether it's Pittsburgh, New England, whatever have reached out and tried to do something because the guy needs some ser- serious help right now. 100%. Well said. Yep. All right. We'll wrap you up on this. It's college basketball season. We've kind of hit the conference season right after New Year's is always kind of the, the heart of college basketball gets going. Just give the audience a little o- quick overview of the college basketball season to date and maybe the four or five teams that you see as kind of the leading teams as we start conference play throughout the country. I was not prepared to say this, uh, you know, a month ago, but I'm prepared to say it now that Baylor, the defending national champion, certainly looks like the team to beat uh, because we've seen, you know, some very flawed performances from the other teams in the top five. Gonzaga, Duke, Purdue just lost to Wisconsin. It's like Purdue's no longer a top five team. Uh, When we're recording this podcast tonight, Jason, this is where we're recording this. Tuesday night, Kansas missed 19 straight shots against Oklahoma State. Had a 29-15 lead. That game became 29-29 at halftime. I mean, we'll you know obviously when people listen to this podcast, that game will be over. But Kansas missing 19 straight shots. Kansas doesn't seem to be a heavyweight. And then over here in the Pac-12, you have three teams in the top 10: Arizona, UCLA, Arizona, and USC. But we're seeing Pac-12 games getting postponed left and right. Right. It's going to be a very cluttered schedule. You're going to see teams having to play maybe like four or five games in like 10 days. Right. So that's not your normal game preparation. For those who aren't familiar with Pac-10, uh, Pac-12 basketball scheduling procedures, a normal week is you go to uh, you know one uh, pair of schools, the Washington schools, the Oregon schools, the Bay Area schools, the Arizona schools, the LA schools, the mountain schools, Utah and Colorado. You go to two schools as your road trip. You play a Thursday game and a Saturday game. 
Sometimes it might be Wednesday, Saturday. Sometimes it might be Thursday, Sunday. Right. Generally, you're playing two games in one uh, part of the conference footprint. So, you know, that means that you get four days off. You get Sunday through Wednesday off right. before you play a Thursday, Saturday pair of games each week. That's going to be blown up by all of these rescheduling instances. So, you know, USC, UCLA, Arizona, when they play each other, those are the big biggest games of the Pac-12 season. They're not going to be played on an even footing in terms of rest, rhythm, preparation. Right. So all of that's up in the air. Uh, but in terms of a larger national level, uh, the ACC is horrible. Like Duke is the only <laughs> really good team in the ACC. That's been rather jarring to see. Like North Carolina might be good enough to get in the NCAA tournament, but not, not anything better than like a number eight or nine seed. Louisville's uh, the ACC might get only three or four teams yeah. in. Yeah. Like that, that that's going to leave a lot of at-large bids uh, available for mid-majors, uh, you know, for, for teams in other conferences. Uh, so that really is one of the bigger plot points of the young season. We've also seen Michigan. You know, Michigan was a preseason Final Four uh, contender. Yeah. Got pounded by Rutgers. Michigan might miss the NCAA tournament entirely. Michigan's near 500 and has to play Michigan State, Purdue, and Illinois. Yeah. It's next three games. Michigan could be multiple games under 500 uh, in mid-January. Uh, so a lot of jarring plot twists already to this season. And, and, and COVID scheduling is going to be the X factor that keeps evolving and changing uh, as we go along. What about, what about a couple of mid-major teams, the Wichita States of the world, the Cincinnati's of the world, any of the, I mean, I know Gonzaga out your way, they're not a mid-major anymore, but what, give me a couple of cents of a couple of those kind of teams that could, in Illinois, Chicago, that could come off the radar and be a real strong team as we, as we get into February. Yeah. Well, what, you know, what's unique about the mid-majors this year is that, you know, the, the coaches at those places, the coaches who made those schools, so good like they went to other jobs like think about like porter moser right leaving loyola chicago you know he's now at oklahoma so with a team like loyola chicago can you really say it's still loyola chicago you know is, does that team still have its personality and identity uh we're you know it's hard to be very sure about that but having having mentioned loyola chicago jason like this is one of the bigger events of the week I don't know if you heard this, uh, your, in, your, your listeners on the Powers on Sports podcast might not be aware of this, but you, know, you remember when uh, BYU and Coastal Carolina scheduled that football game on 72 hours notice? Yep. We've had something similar happen here in college basketball. Loyola Chicago will play the University of San Francisco Thursday midday. <laughs> really weird. Thursday midday, and they're going to do it at a neutral site in Salt Lake City uh, so that they don't have to travel. It's not a pure home game or road game right. they agreed on meeting in in salt lake city so like that is a huge resume game for two quality mid-major teams whoever wins that game significantly increases its uh, chances of getting an at-large bid to the ncaa tournament san francisco has just one loss uh the dons look like the second best team in the west coast conference behind gonzaga they look better than byu they look better than St. Mary's. That's one of the interesting mid-major stories of the year. And so that game against Loyola Chicago, like that is appointment television. I don't know what network it's going to be on, but like that game Thursday afternoon, 
good for breaking up the monotony of work. Yes. Uh, that's going to be a must-watch college basketball game between two mid-majors. And I think you'll see more of that as the as the winter unfolds into February where, you know, Carolina might be play, supposed to play Syracuse. They can't play because of COVID, so Carolina might play Pitt, or Syracuse might play Wake Forest yep. or whatever. You'll mix see and match. These, you'll see some of these mixing the matches and all that stuff. I know Carolina played, what, UCLA? Or no, who did Carolina play a couple weeks ago in Las Vegas? Yeah, Kentucky. They were supposed to play UCLA. The Bruins had the COVID-19 problem. Right. So they mix and match that game for TV. I think you'll see some of that stuff. I know you usually see like a one weekend later in February where there's some mid-major teams that play each other. I think you'll see some of that. So be on the lookout, folks, for that. Matt, tell everybody where they can find you. Great job covering the Pac-12 USC Athletics. Tell everybody where they can find you online. Yeah, so Trojans Wire, we're at trojanswire.usatoday.com. And so, you know, USC's been on a COVID pause with its basketball program for two and a half weeks. But Trojans, hopefully, cross your fingers, will play uh, this week. And they are one of only three unbeaten teams left in college basketball, along with Baylor and Colorado State. Uh, So USC basketball is a big deal. And then, of course, with all the recruiting news that's going to happen in January on into early February with Lincoln Riley, I mean, hey, we suffered through this miserable USC football season, but we sure got the payoff at the end with Lincoln Riley. So USC football is once again a a destination uh, program. It's a it's a high end college football topic, so it's going to be a fascinating off season. Trojanswire.usatoday.com. And he's a great he's a great follow on Twitter as well. He does stuff all throughout the day: bass, college basketball, football, politics, pop culture, anything you want. Matt does a great job with little notes and nuggets on Twitter as well. Give me a, give me a Super Bowl pick who gets out of the AFC and the NFC. Uh, I think, I think it's the Packers time. I think the fact that, you know, remember last year uh, in the pandemic, they couldn't have very many fans in Lambeau field for the NFC championship game. So this year they're going to have a full house. I think that, and just the fact that, you know, with the expanded season, getting that by to rest everybody, means even more this year and then you know in the AFC boy the AFC I mean I know that the Titans get Derrick Henry back um but you know in that in Henry's first game back that's going to be in the divisional round uh you know in that's going to be January 22nd 23rd yeah how how sharp is Derrick Henry going to be and I think it goes to the seedings uh, in that game um, matchup matchup yeah the yeah the, the, the seedings and how they relate to the matchups um like i think the, the that the colts who are gonna they're probably gonna visit the bengals in the in the uh wild card round and you know the bengals haven't won a playoff game in 30 years i think the colts might be able to make some trouble and then, like if they play the titans yeah in the divisional round just yep. with more momentum and more regularity of play also, the Titans swept them during the regular season. It's hard to beat a team three times. I kind of yeah. think that the Colts, uh, not aren't, they aren't going to win, but I, like I think they can take down the Titans. Like I don't trust the Titans uh, to to put it all together. I think that Derrick Henry, I think the divisional round really is going to be the tough game for the Titans. I think if they get through that, Derrick Henry's return, you know, and all, and the rust factor he's going to be dealing with i think if the titans get through that game and then they host the afc title game 
then they're probably the favorite, but I don't think they're going to get past the divisional round. How it's all going to work out, I, I, you know, the, the Chiefs, boy, just when you think they figured it all out, they scored right. 28 points in the first half against the Bengals, and then they scored just three in the second half. Like Just when you thought that, whoa, you know, they're going to be the number one seed, they're going to host the title game in Arrowhead again. So in the AFC, it's really hard, but I'm just going to say I don't think the Titans do it. Uh, and I do think that the pack it's all lining up for the Packers. Um, you know, if they host the Bucks again, you know, could they could they possibly play a worse first half than what they did against the Bucks uh, a year ago? I just have to think that if it's a rematch, it's going to be hard for the Bucks to get the bounces, all the bounces that went their way. It's going to be hard for that to happen a second time. So I think the Packers win the NFC. I have no clue who wins the AFC. I think we're just going to leave it at that and, and, and enjoy the AFC playoffs because that's going to be a free-for-all. Yeah, I don't I'm think anyone has a good feel for that side of the bracket. You can make an argument for any of five teams probably in the AFC to win the AFC. Totally, I mean, totally. I mean, you, I mean you, hate, you can make an argument for Cincinnati because of you Joe could. Burrow and Jamar yep. Chase and that offense. You could obviously – Not Buffalo, ridiculous. Nope. Buffalo with Josh Allen and those guys. I mean, there's four or five teams I could easily make an argument, but – Matt, great analysis. Keep up the great work, my man, and we will be in touch real soon. Always a blast, Jason. Thanks for having me back. All right, Matt. Have a great week, and we'll be right back. I'll give you some NFL game picks heading into the weekend, and this is a tough weekend to make NFL picks, brother. So we'll be, we'll be right back. Thanks for listening to the Powers on Sports podcast. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. And now a word from our podcast sponsor, Titan Home Lending. For all of your home financing needs anywhere in the state of Florida, whether it's a purchase or a refinance, reach out to Titan Home Lending, 205-790-1404. Titan Home Lending is based in Tampa, Florida. We can help you with FHA, conventional, renovation loans, jumbo loans, and virtually anything in between. So reach out to me, Jason Powers, Titan Home Lending, 205-790-1404. Check out my new podcast called the No Quarter Given Podcast, where myself and Peter Blake, we give a historical analysis of all the Buck opponents throughout the regular season. Week to week, every opponent that the Bucks will play this year, we will do a podcast on a historical overview of the rivalry between the Bucks and this week's opponent. So subscribe, rate, and review to the No Quarter Given podcast on all your podcast platforms. Back to the Powers on Sports podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed our chat with Matt Zemick, talking all things college football. We talked Antonio Brown, and we made some predictions for the upcoming uh, Georgia-Alabama National Championship game. So let's get to the Week 18 slate National Football League. Lots of... Lots and lots of uh, drama still to be determined here in the NFL. Um, there are a lot of games that don't have any playoff implications as well. So I'm going to try to uh, give you a couple of games to, to look out for. Uh, be very careful if you're, if you're betting this weekend. Obviously, you need to know who's playing, who's not. You still have COVID issues. You're going to have guys being rested for the playoffs. So make sure you find out on Sunday especially who's in and who's not. When it comes to these games, like I told you in the previous segment, I do like Georgia to beat Alabama Monday night in the college football national title game. I'm, again, I'm predicting like a 33-28 kind of game. 
31-27 kind of game So up in Indianapolis. But I will take the Dogs to get it done and win their first national title since 1980. National Football League. You have three. I'm, I'm going to give you three games that I know have direct playoff implications. First off, you have Dallas and Philadelphia Saturday night in Philadelphia. If the Eagles win, I believe they're in against the Cowboys. Obviously, the Cowboys are playing for seeding as well. They could be anywhere from the two to the four seed in the NFC. They will be hosting a game uh, in round one, but again, their seeding of whether they're going to be two, three, or four is still up in the air. So, uh, other games, a couple of other games. You have San Francisco and the Rams. This is a huge game for both teams. The Rams, if they win, I believe they're the two seed in the NFC, which is going to guarantee them two home games potentially. Uh, and they won't have to go to Green Bay until the NFC title game. And then you have the 49ers, who are now 8, 9, and 7 in a game they have to win. If they win, they're in the playoffs. Not sure about Jimmy Garoppolo. Looks like Trey Lance may start another game. Trey Lance was a little shaky last week and uh, played much better in the second half there against the Houston Texans. But critical, critical game in Los Angeles between the 49ers and the Rams. Again, you got the NFC West uh, divisional game. Teams know each other very, very well. The advantage may, may come down to Trey Lance. Can he make some plays because... Of his inexperience level, you know the pressure is going to be coming from the front four of the Rams. And again, can he make enough plays with his arm to be able to uh, offset the Rams in that uh, game in SoFi? And again, a must-win situation. If the Ram if the 49ers lose and the Saints win, there will be a uh, the 49ers are out. So they, it's a big game for the 49ers. So as well. So. Uh, I kind of like the 49ers somehow to keep the game close. It's San Francisco, or the Rams minus four and a half. I think some way, somehow, they'll keep the game close. The running game was still good. You got Debo Samuels, Kittle. I'll take the 49ers plus the four and a half. Sunday night, Las Vegas. This is a playoff game. Winners in, loser is most likely out. Raiders, Chargers. Chargers are minus three in Las Vegas. What a job by the Raiders in Basaccia, David Carr and company. They went to Indianapolis last Sunday, got a huge win on the road against the Colts uh, to, to keep their playoff hopes alive. And now they're in a they got a home basically a home playoff game this Sunday, which is going to be the NBC game with with uh, Collinsworth and Al Michaels. So I like the Raiders at home plus the three. I think there's some mojo there with the Raiders. The defense is playing good. David Carr is playing good. They're running the ball better. The Chargers are not good against the run, so look for the Raiders to run the ball with Jacobs uh, and Peyton Barber. I, get, I think David Carr will make just enough of plays, and I'm going to take the Raiders with an outright W at home to get to the playoffs. It'll be a great story with all the adversity the Raiders have gone through this year with Gruden and Henry Ruggs and the such. Still no Aaron, Aaron Darren Waller. But again, I like the Raiders at home Sunday night to get it done, go to the playoffs as the six or seven seed in the AFC. You got the Saints in Atlanta, another divisional game. Remember, folks, Week 18 are all division games, so um, they all know each other. This is the second of the division games. The Saints somehow are eight and se uh, nine and seven, and they, I'm sorry, eight and eight. They're eight and eight, I believe. They can make the playoffs with a little bit of help. They got to beat Atlanta in Atlanta. 
You know, the Falcons have played hard for Arthur Smith. Just not good enough team quite yet, but they've done a good job playing hard. The Saints, um, Taysom Hill back in the mix. The defense is really good. This is going to be a, a grinded out kind of game. You got Kamara. You got the, again, the Saint defense is going to, they're going to try to lean on this defense. Um, I don't have a gambling opinion on the game. I think New Orleans will somehow find a way to win, but this would not shock me if the Falcons win the game with Matt Ryan and company. Then you have the Steelers and the Ravens, another bloodbath kind of divisional matchup, AFC North. The Ravens are pretty much out. The Steelers have a faint hope, but they have to win this game. They're 8-7-1. and one. Uh, Most likely Ben Roethlisberger's last game was the Steelers quarterback unless they make the playoffs. But in Baltimore, the Ravens have lost five games in a row. They've lost every which way but loose. One-point games, two-point games. I mean, they've lost so many close games. They, they were the better team last week against the Rams, I thought. Um, took the Rams all the way to the gun. Just could not get in field goal range for Justin Tucker. Lose another heartbreaker 20-19 at home. But the Steelers, can, can they get to 9-7 and seven and get a little bit of help? Uh, again, Roethlisberger against the Steelers should be a low-scoring game. Probably the first team to 20 wins. Um, I like the Steelers plus the 5.5 uh, on the road. Even if they don't win the game, I think it's going to be a, 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 a nutcracker down to the gun. I think this is a field goal game either way. Uh, but I'll take the Steelers in the five and a half. So uh, Tennessee needs to beat T- Houston on the road in Houston. If they win, they're the number one seed. You know, there's word that Derrick Henry potentially could play Sunday. I don't think he will. I think they're going to save Henry for the playoffs. Uh, but Houston needs to win the game. Deontay Foreman, huge game last week against Miami. They should be able to beat the Texans without Derrick Henry. With Tannehill, with Deontay Foreman, with uh, A.J. Brown, should be able to take care of business against the Texans, who have played a lot more competitively the last three or four weeks. So give Cully and that crew down there credit. Davis Mills doing a pretty good job. But I'll take Tennessee minus the 10 to get it done. Wouldn't shock me if this game's a little closer than 10 for a while, but Tennessee will win the game. So... Indianapolis is a must-win game in Jacksonville. Looks like the Jaguars, who gave up 50 last week in New England, have pretty much packed it in. Again, this should be a take-care-of-business kind of game for the Colts. They're a huge favorite, 15.5-point road favorites as of this recording. Uh, Again, I wouldn't mess around with the point spread, but the Colts will win the game. Uh, The Colts will win the game. And again, you have the Patriots. Again, another game they have to win in Miami, in South Florida, against the Dolphins. Dolphins are 8-8. Eight eight. Tough loss last week in Tennessee. Pretty much ended their playoff hopes. Uh, the Patriots are still in the mix. They can get in. They could, If they lose, they're potentially out. Played really well last week at home against Jacksonville. On the road, minus 6.5. Again, Miami has been a house of horrors for the Patriots over the years, so I could see this game being a good game. Defensively, both teams got good defenses. I would tease the Patriots here down to just win the game you're going to play this game. I don't like the Patriots minus six and a half, but I do think the Patriots will find a way to get the job done uh, at home, uh, in Miami on Sunday afternoon, Mac Jones and company. So um, there you have it. Again, Bucks against Panthers minus eight. I'm surprised that game, that number is only eight because again, the Bucks, we're not sure what they'll do as far as will they play their guys? Will they not play Tom Brady? How long? You know, the Bucks could be anywhere from the two to the four seed, depending on this result. Um, they need the Rams to lose to be the two seed, which is a distinct possibility. 
I think the Bucks will play this game by ear to see how the Rams are doing. Will dictate how long the Buck guys play. But I don't think you'll see Brady play the entire game. I think you'll see some Blaine Gabbard in the game. You'll see some reserves. Minus the eight, I do still think the Bucks minus the eight is probably the play here. Again, I would tease this game to minus two because they do need to win the game. I could see this game being a touchdown game, but I'll take the Bucks minus the two on the teaser. You might want to tease the Bucks and the Patriots together, maybe the Bucks and the 49ers together, maybe even the Bucks and the Raiders together. But I do like uh, those are the games I like. Uh, be careful again this week. Know who's playing, whether it's benchings, whether it's COVID, whether it's rest. There's going to be a lot of guys on these contending teams that don't have anything to play for that won't play very long, if at all. So um, you won't see any of the Green Bay guys, I don't think. You won't see Aaron Rodgers, no Devontae Adams, you know, um, all that stuff. Again, Cincinnati's already announced that you won't see Joe Burrow. You won't see Mixon. You won't see Jamar Chase very long. I don't think so. Uh, there you have it. Be careful. Enjoy the weekend. And we will see you on the next episode of the Powers on Sports Podcast. Thanks again for listening to the Powers on Sports Podcast. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you are hearing us tonight. Remember, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Sports. So we'd love to hear your feedback, comments, suggestions for future episodes. And again, thanks for all the support. Remember to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And we'd love to see you back next time for the next episode of the Powers on Sports podcast. Have a great week.